wonderful prayer there that we have just sung together as we come to God's Word. Genesis 35 is our Old Testament text. Genesis 35, this is the Word of the Lord. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree, so the name of it was called Alon Bachut. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Ani, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Billah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob 
buried him. And our New Testament reading is from 1 Peter 2, reading verses 4 through 10. Coming to him, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Amen. Thanks be to God that he has given us his word. Pray with me now that you bless it to our hearts. Gracious Lord God, your word indeed is the most precious thing this world affords. Here are the lively oracles of God. Here are the words of life. Lord, to whom else can we go? We pray that you would speak your word to your servants now, for indeed we are listening. Give us ears to hear and hearts to trust by the power of your spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 35, which we just read, reminds us of two interwoven realities that form the warp and woof of the Christian life. On the one hand is the reality of the curse. Three times in that chapter, the story is punctuated sharply by death and sorrow. It starts with the least significant death and then moves on to the more significant ones. But all of them are sorrowful, culminating with the the death of Isaac himself. We see this this thread being woven throughout the chapter three times. It's punctuated. Uh, uh, Deborah dies, Rachel dies, Isaac dies. Uh, This is among God's covenant people. And it's showing us that God's people are still subject to the curse that is on the whole creation. They're still suffering. They're still under the miseries of this life. At the same time, so that's on the one hand, but on the other hand, throughout this chapter, interwoven with it, we get these wonderful instances, three of them, of God's grace and his, and his blessing. Right? So these two things being woven together. God calls Jacob uh, uh, back to himself in the first place and rescues him from his, uh, the consequences of his son's violence. And then God gives him these abundant blessings. And then God gives him another son, even 12 in all, uh, showing that, that there's this new nation, this renewed humanity that is, that is beginning. These, these two things, the blessing of God in the midst of the curse of, uh, of living in this fallen world. We, we see that in Genesis 35, pretty vividly portrayed for us. And it's, um, it's the same exact reality, loved ones, that we experience in the Christian life. Paul writes about this, 2 Corinthians 4, 
16 and 17, he says, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That, 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 that's really the essence and heart of living as a Christian, isn't it? That, um, that uh, uh, we are living in a world of death around us, even while eternal life is blossoming inside of us. Richard Gaffin, um, professor at Westminster for many years, uh, put it like this. says, do you want to know what it means to know Christ It means experiencing the power of his resurrection through fellowship in his sufferings. Um, We walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but we fear no evil, for he is with us. And we will come safely to the house of the Lord and dwell there forever. That's, that's, That's the point of Genesis 35. As we begin uh, diving into chapter 35, we need, to, we need to remember the context here. Chapter 34, which was a couple weeks ago that we saw this, but chapter 34 um, sees Jacob and his, and his, and his household is back in the promised land, but only barely back there. Uh, they're heading in the right direction, or they were heading in the right direction. But after Jacob's close call with Esau, uh, they, they get sidetracked and they go to the city of Shechem. In Genesis you see someone moving towards a city, it's almost always a bad sign. Not that cities are inherently more sinful than anywhere else, but that's just one of the themes in Genesis. It's the enemies of God who are building the cities and populating the cities. That's where the worldliness is is flourishing in in Genesis. Um, and, And so... Um, uh, Jacob and his family settle near the city. They get comfortable by the city. They move into this. They, 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 they live among the people there. Um, and, and the danger is they're just going to get completely absorbed into that culture, lose their identity as the people of God, and, and, and just be completely assimilated. Um, and this, this has consequences. Jacob's daughter, Dinah, is taken and... Uh, and humiliated and, and violated, and, and the man who, who, who did that to her wants to marry her. Um, and, and he convinces his whole city to get circumcised so that, so that he can, and they can, they can just become one people. Uh, and throughout this whole thing, J- Jacob passively sits there, wringing his hands and not doing anything. And then his sons go violently uh, taking out their anger and vengeance on the, the city of Shechem, and they make a whole mess of it. Um, so the next thing we can expect to happen is that the surrounding nations, uh, the surrounding peoples and cities, are going to come and uh, attack them. Um, attack attack these, these, these people who've done this. So Genesis 34 ends with this dark cloud of shame and sin and worldliness and drift away from God. God isn't mentioned in Genesis 34 at all. And, uh, and, and the vengeance that's hanging over their family. But then, 35 verse 1, God speaks. It's really, it's really beautiful the way the narrator has put this together for us. So the, the second to last verse of chapter 34 says, um, and Jacob said, it tells us what he said. And then the last verse of 34 says, and, and his sons said, it tells us what they said. And then 35 verse 1, God said. It's like God is coming and almost interrupting their conversation, saying, enough, I'm here. And what does he say? What does he come and say to his people? 
is sinful, drifting people. Condemnation? Frustration? He gives them a call to worship. Come away, my sinful, drifting people. Come away to Bethel and worship me. This wonderful grace of God. He says, arise, go up to Bethel. This is, where, uh, this is where Jacob, on his way out of the promised land, had a vision from God, and God gave him these great promises on his way out. And now God's saying, go back to Bethel. And the name of Bethel means house of God. Come back to God's house. Come back to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God. Um, God reminds Jacob here how he's been faithful to him, how he's rescued him from every danger, how he's, how he's been with him all the way. And it's just this other, another moment in Jacob's life where he has been completely messing up. And God comes graciously again to him, calls him back to himself again, calls him back to faithfulness and back into his presence. What we see pictured for us here is the letter I in the acronym TULIP, which stands for the five points of Calvinism, of course. I, irresistible grace working in, in Jacob's life. Often we think of God's grace as, as it brought me to faith. I was stubbornly in unbelief. God came with his irresistible grace and he, he drew me to him. Right, but, but, but then then it's kind of up to me from, from that point on. I don't need the irresistible grace of God anymore. I just, now, now, I, now I trust. Now I trust. Um, uh, irresistible grace was a thing in the past, but that's not at all the way it, it works. Irresistible grace is, uh, it, it, it is what keeps us all the way through our Christian life. When I was in high school, I was part of the, the chorus in high school, and we sang a, a spiritual rendition of, um, of, uh, of Amazing Grace, uh, um, Loosely based in Amazing Grace. And one line from it still sticks in my head. It goes like this. It was grace that taught me. It was grace that brought me. And it's grace that will lead me home. Grace brought me. And it's grace that's going to keep me and lead me and take me all the way home. Not, not me, not my own effort. But the ongoing daily grace of God that we don't ever move on from. This is, what, this is what Jacob is learning here, isn't it? What does the grace of God in his life do for him? It transforms him night and day from chapter 34. Chapter 34, he was sinking fast into, into worldly compromise. Um, but now the grace of God is at work in him and it's transforming him. And, and Jacob is leading again and trusting again. He's, he's repenting. He's calling his family to repent. He says, put away the foreign gods. We're going to go worship the Lord in his house, Bethel. Put away the foreign gods. Put away the idols. Let's be faithful to the Lord again. They, they, they purify themselves. They get rid of the idols. They, they even change their clothes to show we are set apart holy to the Lord. I'm guessing that, that they're confessing their sins to God, repenting of their sins, crying out for His mercy and His grace and His cleansing. You see, the, this is the way the grace of God is at, is at work. This is what the grace of God always does. It gets down into our hearts, brothers and sisters. And, 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 and suddenly you don't want the old idols anymore. Jacob can't stand the sight of them anymore. He's tolerated them fine for a long time, but the grace of God has brought him to this point where now he says, get, we need to get rid of the idols and be cleansed. 
God's grace does this. God's grace transforms. It also, we see God's grace protecting Jacob here as he, as he, as he works in his life. Um, as they're going to Bethel, those angry neighbors who are all upset that they just slaughtered the city of Shechem, they don't go after them. They're, they're, they're too scared. God puts a terror on the cities around so that they won't, they won't, uh, they won't go after them. And God brings them safely to Bethel and what it must have been like for them to then finally get to Bethel. And, and Jacob could say, ah, there's the stone that I put my head on for a pillow as we were heading out. And God said, I'm going to bring you back here. And now look, family, we're here. God, God has brought me back. He's kept his promise. What a good and gracious God he is. And they're worshiping there, God there and, and, and praising him and thanking him. Um, it's a beautiful and precious moment. And, and it would be a wonderful place to stop. Camera fades out. Credits roll. Good story. Um, but that's not how it stops. They're there in Bethel. They're rejoicing in the faithfulness of God. God's grace is at work. They're under God's blessing. And it's all wonderful. But then, verse 8. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alan Bakuth. There's no lead-up to this. And then there's nothing really after it, commenting on it. It's really striking the way it just is plopped right into the middle of the narrative. Verse, uh, uh, verse, verses 1 through 7 are an account of God's grace. Uh, ver- verses 9 through 15 are an account of God's grace again, his blessing. And then stuck, sandwiched right in the middle, verse 8, this strange verse about the death of this woman whose name we have not even known up to this point and is only mentioned in one other verse in Genesis. Rebecca's nurse, Deborah. The last time we, the only other time she appears in Genesis is back in chapter 24 when um, Rebecca first came with Abraham's servant to come and marry Isaac. Uh, we're told that her nurse went with her. Um, pro- her nurse, probably very much like a mother figure for her, comes with her, attends her, and, and, and comes with her. And it seems like that we didn't, there's no other account of this in Genesis, but it seems like the fact that she's here now with Jacob, uh, it seems like she went with him when he left the promised land in the first place. And she's been with him. Uh, sort of like a link to his mother, Rebecca. Rebecca herself couldn't go with her son Jacob when he had to flee the promised land. Um, but, but she sends her nurse with him. Um, uh, uh, but, but now, now they're back in the promised land and here where their journey began, her earthly pilgrimage ends and, and she dies in Bethel, the house of God. And she's buried under a tree nearby and it is named Alan Bakuth, the terebinth of weeping. So it speaks there of Jacob's great affection for her. And he's lost this link to his mother that he had. And so, he, so here we are. They've enjoyed God's grace. And then sorrow breaks into it interrupts it, as it were, right? Um, And it's teaching us that the earthly promised land that they have come back to is not the final thing. It's not the heavenly promised land. Um, uh, The curse of Genesis 3, that God's wrath is against sin and that that all all mankind is under the curse of death, is still still active, still unavoidable, even for God's people. God's grace does not end grief. 
in this life. And if that was true then, it's, all, it's also true now. Um, even more pointedly for us now, I think, the contrast is even greater for us as, as Christians because we're living after the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of the dead has begun, yet we still die. What a mystery. We're waiting for that day when Christ's resurrection uh, is also fully in every way applied to us and we also are raised up in the last day. God is making, God is making this point clear in the text for us in the, in, in the clearest possible way. We, we, face, uh, we face difficulty, we face grief in this life in the midst of His grace. But then His grace and His blessing continue. God is reminding us as, as He goes on in the text, verses 9 through 15, that even though the curse still applies, God's blessing also still applies. Uh, we, we see this in, in verses 9 through 15. God blesses Jacob. Um, the, first, the first part of this, it has three parts, this blessing. First, he names Jacob Israel, Prince of God, the name means. Uh, Jacob carries God's name on him. He's marked out as belonging to him. He is very much an, a new Adam, God's representative, reigning over, uh, reigning over this uh, creation, so, so to speak. Uh, God's vice regent over this, this new creation. Um, he, is, he is God's man. Um, but it's, it's interesting that, that God tells him here, your name is no longer Jacob, your name is Israel now, because God already told him this back in, in chapter 32. Um, why, why again? It's because Jacob has drifted again. And so God comes graciously once again to him saying, Jacob, you are no longer the old sinful Jacob that you were. You are the new man I've made you to be. You're mine, Jacob. My name is on you. God is confirming his grace to him, solidifying Jacob's sense once again of, of who he is in God, reminding him, Jacob, my name is on you. And brothers and sisters, even as God reminds Jacob of that, so we often need to be reminded of that as well. Who are you? Are you your old sinful self, dead in sin in Adam? Or are you a man or woman in Christ. That's how, that's how Paul speaks of himself in 1 Corinthians. It's precious. He says that he is a man in Christ. Right? His identity is all right, in, in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. His name is on us. If you've been baptized, right, you have his name on you, marking you out as his own forever. The second part of the blessing here, so, so first God says, your name is Israel, uh, puts his name on him yet again. The second part of the blessing, um, we see this exact repetition of God's command to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1.28. Uh, God, in Genesis 1.27, creates man in his image, and then in 1.28 says, now, image bearer, be fruitful and multiply. Right? Spread my reflection and my glory through this whole earth is, is the command. And now, here, after sin has entered the picture, God is still pursuing the same goal. He's going to remake his image. And he says to, uh, to, he's just said to Jacob, you're not Jacob anymore, you're Israel, you're mine, you're, you're my representative now, be fruitful and multiply. Spread my glory through this earth. God is showing that he's redeeming this holy people for himself. 
who will restore, uh, he'll restore his image in them and spread his true worship throughout the world. So God commands him to do this, but with the command, he gives the promise that he himself, God himself, will make sure it happens. In, in verse 11, he says, A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. Uh, God, God is commanding something to be done, and then God is saying and that he himself is going to, to make sure that it, that it happens. We see this over and over as God makes, uh, in, in the covenant of grace, God, God commands, and then he fulfills himself that command that needs to happen. And we, we see this, this promise that is being given to, to Jacob here carried on through, 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 the, through the whole story of, of the Bible. Um, this promise, you're going to be a holy people. You're going to spread out and, 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 and spread my glory through the whole earth as redeemed image bearers. Uh, we, we see this flourishing in, in as, as the people of Israel are brought out of Egypt 400 years or so later. Um, in Exodus 19, verse 6, God says, you are a kingdom of priests. You are, you are my holy people. Um, and, and this is brought all to a, a fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is Israel, true Israel, the Prince of God, uh, uh, who is God's representative, who is the image, the very image of God. And as Jesus sends out his spirit um, to create a new humanity, he is being fruitful and multiplying. He's fulfilling that, 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 great, uh, that, that great creation mandate. And, and in a sense, as he gives his church the great commission, go make disciples of all nations. It's the same word, same, same essential promise that God is giving here to Jacob. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with worshipers. Go out to the ends of the earth. This new humanity being made. This new, holy, set-apart people. That's the second part of the blessing. third part of the blessing is, is the holy place. So we've seen the holy, God, God's, God's prince, uh, his holy prince, his holy people, and now the third is, is, this, is this holy place in the presence of God. Verse 12, God promises Jacob that he is going to receive, uh, receive a, a, this inheritance, this promised land. Um, Loved ones, this is uh, God's giving the promised land to his people as a picture of the heavenly inheritance that is ahead of them. And and, uh, this is exactly what our Lord promises us as well, that he is going to bring us into his own holy presence. And so all of it, to sum up, um, the heart of God's promise to Jacob is you will be you will be my holy prince, ruling over uh, my holy people, dwelling in the holy place in my presence. That's the promise that we see given to Jacob. And that's the promise also given to our Lord Jesus Christ in a great, much fuller and, and greater and more expansive, more expansive way. And, and, and also to us in Christ. Um, we read of this. We read it earlier in, in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. Peter picks up this language of the Old Testament, holy people uh, set apart for God. Um, and, and he picks it up and he applies it to the church. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That is who we are 
in Christ. All these promises given to Jacob are so much more fully true for us as well. So there's wonderful promises given to us. But even as we live in the reality of these promises that he's given, the grace, the blessing he's shown, we also still live in the veil of tears. We live under the blessing of God in a cursed world. And, and as, as this chapter marches on, it brings us back to that. Right? We get this wonderful, uh, wonderful word of God's promises, and no sooner do we read of these and this, I'm sure, mountaintop experience for Jacob and his family at Bethel, and his beloved wife Rachel dies. Again, punctuating the chapter here with, with death, grief, sorrow. Um, she dies. Uh, she dies in childbirth. She's a hard laborer, uh, but but she has this baby boy. This is it, it's a it's a it's a moment that's rich with with paradox. Right? She is experiencing Eve's curse, pain in childbirth, even as she is fulfilling God's promise to Eve, a seed of the woman being born. Right? Both those things, the blessing and the curse, are, are right there in this moment as Rachel is bringing forth this child and dying at the same time. Um, it's this strike, stark, stark picture of these things. God's blessing coming, even as she feels the pain of, of the curse of, of the miseries of this life. Right? Just showing us again, God's blessing at work in the midst of this cursed uh, world. So we see that, and, and then as the chapter goes on, we get this little verse, verse 22, which very briefly tells us of, of Reuben and his sin. So after Rachel dies, and Jacob's in great grief for his beloved wife, um, uh, uh, the, the very next thing we read is that, that his oldest son um, commits adultery uh, with, with his concubine, Bilhah. Um, this is, a, this is an insult to Jacob. It's a challenge to his leadership. It's an affront to the holiness of God. And it just completes this picture of the intractable, stubborn, and severe sinfulness of this family, even under the blessing of God and under the grace of God. And, 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 and they have both sin and sorrow in, in great abundance here. Um, it's, it's, and again, it's easy to, to say, there it is again. There's our experience, this side of heaven in the gap between the promise and the fulfillment. God has given us this great salvation, these great blessings, His grace, and yet sin remains. Sorrow remains. We're waiting for the sinless and sorrowless future that's ahead, but it's not here yet. So, so again, it repeats this pattern now twice. Blessing uh, and, and the experience of the curse. Blessing and the experience of the curse. And then it does it one more time. Um, the chapter repeats this. Verses 23 to 26 list out the sons of Jacob. Despite all their sins and failures so far, despite the sins and failures of these sons that are yet to come that we know of, of course, um, what we see here is this fulfillment of God's promise. Jacob, be fruitful and multiply. I'm going to make sure you are. Twelve sons. Here's the beginning, right? The, 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 the very beginning of this foundation of God's people in this new nation. And so it's a great encouragement to, to see this and a, a reminder of God's grace and His blessing on Him to, to, to begin this holy people, this holy nation. But then once again, as soon as that list is done, a reminder of death again and the curse again. 
Jacob comes to his father, verses 27 to 29, at the end of the chapter, and then we're told his father dies. Ripe old age of 180. And like Isaac and Ishmael uh, coming together to bury their father, Abraham, uh, Jacob, and Esau come together to bury their father, Isaac. So the chapter keeps up throughout this drumbeat of, of, of death, um, and, and then it ends with Isaac's death, last of all. And, and there are notes of, of blessing about it, but it seems to end with this note of, of, of grief. Isaac lived a good long life, but in the end, he also dies. And it seems like the, the, the curse is stronger than the blessing. God keeps giving blessings, but the people of God keep dying. And that's often how we're tempted to look at our own lives and our own experience. The curse looks stronger than the blessing, Lord. Loved ones pass away. It feels stronger than sometimes even the gospel. God's people still suffer. We're keenly aware of what Paul means when he says he's filling up in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Our grief seems to outweigh our glory. So what do we do? How do we walk by faith in this veil of tears? We look to the promises God has made. We see God reminding Jacob of the promises here in this chapter to strengthen his faith. We need to do that. Keep our eyes on the promises. Look up from the horizon of our experience and by faith, look on the promises God has given us. But, but, but even more essentially, look on the one who's making the promises. We didn't touch on this in, in verse 11, but, but there in verse 11, as God is making the promises to Jacob, he roots and grounds all the promises in who he himself is. He says, I am God Almighty. He's always saying to Jacob, fix your faith here. Yes, on the, on the promises, but on the one who's making them. God Almighty. He could have used a different name for himself. But he, he, he points Jacob to his power to say, I have made the promises and I'll keep the promises. I'm blessing you and the curse will not have the final say. Death will not have the final say. My blessing and my grace will have the final say. It is God, loved ones. Almighty God. Omnipotent God. Sovereign God who promises you that one day you'll, beyond, you'll be beyond the reach of sin and beyond the reach of sorrow, that you'll be with his prince, Jesus Christ, among his holy people in the new creation, in his presence, in the, in the heavenly Jerusalem. God Almighty has guaranteed that promise to you. He sealed it to you. He's purchased it for you in the very blood of his Son. He's evidenced his almighty power to accomplish such a promise by raising Christ from the dead. So keep your eyes on him, loved ones. The curse will not last. God's blessing will. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us out from the valley of the shadow into your house forever. We pray that as we continue our earthly pilgrimage, we would be strengthened for endurance with joy, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. 
We pray this in his name. Amen.